0: Let me begin this morning by reading our passage for us in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. Paul says this, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. I know that we have all heard the popular phrase, let go and let God. And what's behind this phrase, this slogan, is the idea that Christians don't really need to do anything in sanctification. Sanctification. Because we've already been saved by God. All we do is let go and just let God. What that phrase there conveys is that all Christians have to do is sit back, relax, be passive, and just let go and let God. You've already been saved. You don't really need to worry about your sin, about your heart, about all the things that are going on in your heart. You don't need to worry about sanctification. You just let go and let God. In fact, if you have sin or troubles in your life, well, just let go and let God. However, this type of thinking conveys a false understanding of Christianity and sanctification. Then you have the opposite of this, the opposite of let go and let God. Instead of passive Christianity, you have legalists who think that they have to do it all. This is the person who thinks that his spiritual growth is dependent upon the things that he does or doesn't do. This is a person who makes rules for themselves. And they think that by following these rules that they become somehow more spiritual. These are people who are often known as those who don't smoke don't drink, don't chew, and don't go with girls who do. <laughs> it's all about rules. It's rule following. Rules that they have made up as so, some kind of external show to try and make themselves more spiritually sanctified. But legalism is a false sense of spirituality because it's focused upon who? Upon self. It's all about self. Legalists have a false understanding of sanctification where they think that their spirituality all depends upon their efforts. Now, I, I know that these are two opposites, these are two extremes, but these are realities today. This is the way that people think today. You have people who think that they just believe and do nothing. And you have people who think that they must do it all in order to be spiritual. But there's a problem with both of these. For the the passive let go and let God person, what this person is believing is that they need to do less. Less. Just do less. They they think that they just need to get out of the way so God can do it. In fact, I found one website that says how to let go and let God in eight steps. You have the privilege of me reading those for you this morning. Step one, acknowledge your problem to God. Step two, thank God for opening your eyes to the problem. Step three, resist the urge to feel ashamed or embarrassed. Step four, ask God to take your problem. Step five, leave your problem with God. Step six, trust and rest in His goodness and strength. And then step seven, when you inevitably take it up again, simply return to step one. Now, I told you there's eight steps, right? I don't know how you're going to make it to step eight. Because you just keep going back to step one. (laughs) And it's this cycle over and over again. But if you make it to step eight, step eight says this. Be open to how God leads you through the process of letting go. What does it even mean? (laughs) I mean, you might hear that and think, wow, how spiritual. Just be open to how God leads you through the process of just letting go, letting go, letting go. But what you hear from this type of thinking is that it's all passive. It's all passive. No activity on the part of the believer. Just let it go, let it go, let it go, let it go. And what this does is it ignores all of the imperatives that are given in Scripture. I mean, if all Christianity was, was to just take your problem to God and do nothing, Paul could have shortened up a lot of his epistles, right? Take out all of the commands that are in there. And just tell every church that whenever they have a problem, just let go and let God. It's all you have to do. And all your problems will go away. Paul could have really simplified his writing, right? If it was really true. But Paul doesn't do that. If you remain in a passive state, you'll just continue in this depressing cycle because you'll never get to the point in which you do something about your problem. Ultimately about your sin. Because that's the root of every problem, right? sin. But many people think that they become spiritual by doing this. In fact, there's a movement known as quietism, quietism, which one commentator says it, quote, teaches that spiritual peace and even perfection can be achieved through the contemplation of God and things divine. The practitioner of quietism seeks to subdue the will and become totally passive spiritually, end quote. These who who practice this, this quietism, they believe that they can achieve a state of sinlessness, total perfection, by just letting go, contemplating divine things, let go and let God. They Essentially, they just quiet themselves and they think that in this state of passivity, that God is going to take them over completely and get them to a state of complete perfection. That's what they believe. But what's the problem with this? What's the problem with this type of thinking? Well, when this person does fall into sin, because they will, right? First John 1 John 1.8 says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So God says, you are going to fall into sin. You won't reach a state of perfection. But when they do fall into this sin, is it God's fault? I mean, I just let go and let God. Oh, and then I fell into sin. So, whose fault was it? Is it your fault or is it God's fault? If you let go and let God and it's all of God, then you're blaming God for your sin, and that's a big problem. That's a big problem. And so, this this type of spiritual passivity is not biblical. It's not biblical. In fact, there are plenty of commands in Scripture to show us that there are things that we must do. Let me give you a few of those. Hebrews 12.4 Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. What is the author of Hebrews saying there? Pursue peace and pursue sanctification. 1 Corinthians 6.18 We spoke about this yesterday morning. Men's breakfast. Flee immorality. It's a command. 1 Timothy 4.7 Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. All of these commands here, they're all active imperatives. They're all active commands that are given to believers. These are things that you and I must Do. So spiritual passivity is not biblical. What about the flip side then of passivity? Well, what about legalism? me doing everything to make myself spiritual? Is there a problem with that? Well, of course there is. Why? Well, because when we begin to look at self and think that we can make ourselves spiritual, then who gets the glory? We do. That's called what? Pride. Pride. I get all the glory. Look, God, what I have done. Aren't you so proud of me, God? And in legalism, what people do is they begin to bring glory to themselves for how great they are spiritually. For how great their spiritual sanctification is. It leads to a pharisaical thinking. Oh God, I'm I'm so glad I'm not like those other people. Pride. And when they fall, when the legalist falls, what happens then? What happens to them? They become discouraged because they have let self down who was in control of their own spiritual sanctification. And they'll begin to beat themselves up because they've let self down, because they've been totally dependent upon self. And so there's an imbalance with these two views. And both of them are problematic for us as believers when it comes to our sanctification. One view says sanctification is all of God and I do nothing. The other view says that sanctification is all by me and my own efforts. So what does God say about this? Well, that's what we're going to look at here this morning And next Sunday as well. But before we move on, let me just pause right here for a moment. I want to pause here to address sanctification. This passage that we're about to dive into is a passage on sanctification. It's a glorious passage on sanctification. And we need to address sanctification because this is probably one of the most neglected aspects of Christian life. And yet it's the place where you and I are right now in the present. We are all in the process of sanctification. We're all to be living as believers being more sanctified. You see, there there are two aspects of the Christian life that believers love to talk about. What are they? We love to talk about justification. Justification right? When God saved us, when we were saved by Christ, we love to talk about justification, and it's right to talk about justification. We also love to talk about glorification, right? When is Jesus going to come so that I can be glorified? We love to talk about that. Justification, and we love to talk about glorification. But what about sanctification? Do we love to talk about sanctification? We should. It's in the place that all of us are in. Right now, we're all in sanctification. We're not yet glorified. Guess what? Jesus promised we'll get there. We will be glorified. You don't have to worry about that. That's going to happen in the future. But right now, all of us are in the process of sanctification. Yet, sanctification is often the most neglected by believers. We love to talk about the past and what Christ did for us. We love to talk about the future and what Christ is going to do for us. But we neglect the present. And what God commands us to do in this life. One commentator says, sanctification cannot be reduced merely to an event, but must be lived as an ongoing process. It's an ongoing process that began at the moment of justification when we were saved by Christ. It began at that moment and it continues on and it continues on and it continues on until we go to see Christ face to face. And it's something that all of us need to focus on now because it's the present reality that we live in, right? It's our present reality. It's what we need to focus on because it's exactly where God has us now. Right now, God is calling for us. God commands for all of us to be sanctified. He's going to come again, as He promised, and He's going to bring us to glorification. But what about now? What are we doing now in the present? God commands us to grow in Christ's likeness. In fact, isn't that exactly what we saw back up in verse 5? Look there, Philippians 2 and verse 5. Paul says this, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. This is a command. We are to have this attitude in ourselves. It's a command for us to be like Christ. But in order for us to be like Christ, we must grow in what? In sanctification. We must be sanctified. But how does that happen? Can I do all of this on my own? No. Is it all of God where I just sit back and do nothing? No. But you might say, well, what about passages like Galatians 2.20? I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but what? Christ who lives in me. Oh, you see the Apostle Paul there? Doesn't that mean I'm dead? And it's only Christ now? No, because Paul continues on in that verse with the tension there. He continues on and he says, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So there's the tension. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and yet the life that I now live, I am living. The life that I live in this flesh. So then, is sanctification something that we do, or is it something that God does? Answer, yes. Yes. It's not something that is an either-or, it's a both-and. It's a both-and. On the one hand, sanctification is the sovereign work of the Spirit of God. And we must understand that sanctification cannot happen apart from the Spirit of God and His work in our lives. And yet, as believers, we are commanded to work out our salvation. There are things that we must do. We're commanded to pursue sanctification as we read in Hebrews twelve fourteen. Pursue peace with all men and pursue the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. There must be sanctification in our lives. And that's exactly what Paul is commanding us here in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. In fact, these verses that are here before us, are vital for our Christian life. Ligon Duncan said this is one of the most important passages in all of the Bible about sanctification. In fact, it is these two verses that shaped the theology of Jonathan Edwards, the greatest American theologian to ever live. Edward said this about it. From St. Paul, a sentence hit me when I was about 22 that has shaped my theology ever since. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you to will and to do His good pleasure. My prayer is that as we work our way through this That it will not only shape our theology, but that it will conform us to the image of Christ. And as we work our way through these verses, we're going to see three aspects of working out our salvation. Three aspects of working out our salvation. First, we work it out obediently. We work it out obediently. Second, we work it out reverently. And third, we work it out dependently. But before we get into these points, we need to again be reminded of the context. There's always a context in which we study Scripture. And this is so important for us to know. Now, as you know, last week we finished working through the Christ hymn in verses 6 through 11, right? We made it through there, we studied that amazing hymn there, and we saw the magnificent model of Christ who humbled himself. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. And even though we took our time working through that passage and we looked at the theological implications of it because they're so marvelous, we we couldn't just look over that. But as we took our, our time, we worked our way through it, we have to keep the context in mind. We have to understand the context that Paul has in mind as he's writing this letter to the Philippians. And we need to be reminded of why Paul launched into this Christ him to begin with. Why did Paul all of a sudden launch into this magnificent Christ him to exalt Christ for us? Well, what is it that Paul's been talking about? Well, if you go back up to chapter 1 and verse 27, notice what he says there. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then he launches into things that show that kind of conduct. Again, in one twenty-seven, they need to be standing firm in one spirit. They need to be striving together for the faith of the gospel. They need to not be alarmed by their opponents. They need to realize that suffering is a part of the Christian life. In verse 29. They need to be of the same mind and and be unified in chapter 2 and verse 2. They need to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit in verse 3. They need to, with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than themselves. And if you look at that, Christ is the ultimate perfect model of one who conducted himself in this manner, right? And that's why Paul gives us this great, glorious Christ hymn. He says, now let me show you the model. Let me show you the one who has done this. And although we saw these, the great theological truth in the Christ hymn, That was not Paul's main point in writing that. His main point in writing that was what? Not theological, but what? Practical. Practical. It was for our ethical living. This is how you are now to live. He's urging us how to live out our Christian life. How to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And yet you can see that Paul cannot divide the theological from the practical, right? You can't divide them. The theological is so important for us to know and understand so that we can then live out the practical. As I've told you before, doctrine and duty go hand in hand. Doctrine and duty go hand in hand. In order for us to grow spiritually, we must also grow doctrinally. We must grow in our knowledge of God's truth. We must grow in our understanding of God's Word. Because what you live out is always what you believe. Right? What you believe, you will live out. That's why it's so important for us to to study theology and doctrine. It doesn't just shape our beliefs, but it also shapes our actions because we'll always act upon what we believe. And so, with all of that in mind, Paul then launches into these two great verses in verses 12 and 13. And notice how Paul begins in verse 12, he says, so then, so then. As we transition from the Christ hymn, from this great theological and practical example that shows us how we are to live, Paul then says, so then. And what Paul is doing here with these two words is he's setting up his appeal. He's setting it up. One commentator says, Paul moves quickly and easily from theological contemplation to practical implication. To practical implication. After looking at all that the Christ hymn proclaims, which proclaims to us what? I'll tell you what it proclaims to us. Humility, submission, obedience, lordship, and bringing glory to God, right? Right? Didn't we see all of that there in that Christ hymn? It was all in there. The humility of Christ. The submission of Christ. The obedience of Christ. The lordship of Christ. And Christ doing all for the glory of God the Father. And Paul uses all of that then to make an appeal to us and how we are to live. So then. You see, the Christ hymn is not just a bunch of good information to know. As if we just went through some kind of Bible study class just to store this information in our brains. That's not what it's about. But it's in our Bible so that we can learn from it and live our lives according to the truths that it reveals to us. And as he has just commanded the church earlier to be unified, he knows that when the church submits to the lordship of Christ, she will be unified. When we, as a body of Christ, submit to the lordship of Christ, we will be unified. Because we'll be of one mind. The same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. When we submit to the Lordship of Christ, we'll do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But submitting to the Lordship of Christ, we will act with humility of mind regarding one another as more important than ourselves. And all of that happens under the Lordship of Christ. Those theological truths will lead to practical living. And the church will honor Christ when we submit ourselves to His Lordship. Notice then who Paul is writing to in verse 12 there. He says, So then, my beloved. My beloved. These are the believers in Philippi. His beloved. He has great passion for these people as he's the founder of the church there. He came in preaching the gospel and founded the church there at Philippi. He's essentially their spiritual father. He loves them. These people are close to him. These are his friends. These are his companions, his brothers and sisters in Christ, and he has great affection for them, as does every pastor for his flock. Great affection. I have great affection for you to see you sanctified. That is my desire for you to be sanctified believers, to grow in your knowledge and understanding of Christ and who he is and to become more and more like him. It is my deepest desire to see you grow in Christ likeness. And I can tell you that as a pastor there is no greater joy than seeing God's people sanctified. There's no greater joy than seeing the sanctification of the flock. Paul told the Galatian believers in Galatians 4.19, my children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. I will labor and I will labor and I will labor until Christ is formed in you. Until Christ is perfected in you. And that's what every true pastor must do. And that's what every true pastor wants for God's sheep. For the body of Christ to labor and labor and labor until Christ is formed in you. And I can tell you that as a pastor, as I see Christ being formed in you, there is no greater joy. There is none. There's none. That's what Paul wanted for these Philippian believers. For this church there at Philippi. These are his beloved. His beloved people. And he wants them to grow in sanctification. And specifically, he wanted them to work out their salvation. It's exactly what he says in the middle of verse 12. Notice what he says there. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That in fact, those four words, work out your salvation, that's the the, the main verb, the main command in these two verses here. That's the action that is to be done, that Paul is commanding them to do. It's an imperative, and he's commanding them to work out their salvation. Now, notice Paul does not say, work for your salvation. Right? He does not say that. He doesn't say work for your salvation. Salvation is not something that anyone can earn. No one can earn it. Back to Ephesians 2 8 and 9, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is what? It's the gift of God. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation is completely by God's grace. It's an act of God. And what God does is He saves sinners by His grace. Not because any of us are good enough. Not because we have worked for it. Because none of us can earn our salvation. No one has become good enough to be saved. And so Paul is not saying that you need to work for your salvation or work on your salvation, as if somehow it could diminish and you could lose it. As if somehow you were saved by the grace of God and now you got to work on it because you might lose it. Make sure you keep it up because it might go away. No, God promised all those in whom he saved what? Eternal life. Eternal which means forever. Which means you can't lose it. It's eternal. The moment you get eternal life and God promises that to you, it's for all of eternity. And so he's not saying work on your salvation as if somehow you could lose it. He's not saying work at your salvation as if somehow you're going to improve it. No, he says work out your salvation work it out and what's interesting is that in in the Greek this word for work out is a present tense imperative what does that mean it simply means this it means that this is to be something that you are continuously doing You are to continuously be working out your salvation. The salvation that happened the moment that you were justified, work that out. One commentator translates it this way. Continue working out your own salvation. That's what we're called to do. Now in the Greek that word you're there is a third person plural pronoun meaning you all you all And what Paul is doing here is he's writing to the whole church collectively to be working out their salvation Every one of you within the church you must be working out your salvation And even though it's a a plural pronoun, implied is that each individual believer is working out his or her own salvation because the only way for the church collectively to work this out is if each one of us works at it individually, right? This is always true of the collection of the saints in the church. In order for it to be done collectively, it starts individually. With each one of us. One commentator says, personal salvation always impacts the believing community. And the believing community is the context in which all personal faith finds expression. We must each believe But we must never believe in isolation or without larger relational impact. God doesn't save us so that we could be on our own and go live our Christian life all on our own. No, he saves us and says, now you are a part of the body of Christ. Go join the local church. Be with them. That's where you're to be. And what happens then in the context of the local church We're being sanctified, right? We talked about it this morning in Equipping Hour. God has given every single one of us a spiritual gift. Why? For the edification of the church, to build one another up. That's the context in which that happens. God doesn't save us and say, now go live your Christian life all by yourself. He doesn't do that. Too many people believe that. It's not biblical. There's nowhere in Scripture found a believer who then is isolated from the local church. It's the context in which sanctification happens. And as each one of us is individually being sanctified, what is then happening collectively as the body of Christ. It's being sanctified. That's what we're called to do. And each one of us then obeys this command and are called to obey this command to work out our salvation. And as we do it, it'll impact the entirety of the church. And remember, what's the specific theme that Paul's been addressing in the past 15 verses? The big overarching theme is what? Is unity. Unity within the body of Christ. That's the main theme throughout these verses. And when each one of us is working out our salvation, that will bring unity to the body of Christ. We will then be of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Now, Let me just quickly look at this command again. Work out your salvation. Or continue working out your salvation. Again, Paul is not talking about doing enough good works in order to be saved. That's not what he's talking about. Salvation is by faith alone, as we heard in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. However, as one commentator puts it, Paul is against any so called salvation that does not produce good works. In fact, after proclaiming that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, in Ephesians 2 8 and 9, Paul continues in verse 10 and he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. For good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Paul is against any so-called salvation that does not produce good works. In fact, one commentator says, Clearly, Paul is against any form of works righteousness, but he is also against any so-called salvation that does not produce good works. Paul doesn't know of any fruitless salvation. He doesn't. It's not in the the Bible. There is no fruitless salvation. True salvation always results in good works. Steve Lawson says it this way. One of the marks of a true believer is we live in a habitual pattern or lifestyle of obedience to the word of God. Now, do we disobey at times? Yes. We do. Every one of us. We disobey at times. But what is the heart of a true believer? We confess that and we repent of that. We we work that out. We confess our disobedience to God's Word and we repent of that so that we can strive after obedience to God and His Word. You see, there are people who will say, I got saved at such and such an age, but I really didn't start obeying God's Word until ten years later. Guess what? That time in which they say they were saved, It's not true salvation. Yeah, but I said a prayer. Doesn't matter. Prayer doesn't save you. Listen, Paul knows of no salvation like that. The Bible is very clear. Paul is very clear. There is no salvation in which does not produce good works. In fact, in Luke 6, Jesus confronted a large group of people who identified themselves as disciples of Jesus. That's how they identified themselves. They were followers of him. In fact, turn over there to Luke chapter 6 with me. I want to show you what Jesus says to them. This is Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has this large group of people there that he's teaching. And he has these followers who were there. And in Luke chapter 6 and verse 46, Jesus says this, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Verse 47, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. Who's he talking about there? The true believer. The one who says, Lord, Lord, and acts upon the commands of Christ. But notice what he says in verse 49. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation. And the torrent burst against it and immediately it collapsed and the ruin of that house was what? Great. You know what he's talking about there? He's talking about divine judgment. The floods came and they burst it open. There was no foundation. It didn't stand. That's the one who has heard his words and has not acted accordingly. That ruin was great. Yeah, yeah but notice what Jesus says in verse 46. They called him what? They called him Lord. A Lord, Lord. A master, master. What does Jesus say in Matthew 7? Many will call me Lord, Lord, right? Many will say, Lord, 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 didn't you see? What does he say? Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. I never knew you. These are those who call themselves disciples of Jesus, but they didn't have any fruit. There was no good works in their life, no obedience to the master. As John MacArthur says, saving faith is obedient faith. Saving faith is obedient faith. And that's why the Apostle Paul is telling the Philippians to continue to work out their salvation. Their salvation was sealed in the past when Christ saved them. But there is now continued sanctification that needs to take place in their lives. And this here is a non-negotiable It's a non-negotiable. If you've been saved or since you have been saved, you must continue to work out your salvation. It's a clear command that Paul is giving here for all of us to pursue sanctification. And listen, this is the time in which God has you, right? This is the time, this is the place It's now. And what God is calling us to do is to be those who are working out our salvation, to be sanctified, to grow in our obedience to Him. Let me ask you, what kind of fruit are you producing in your life? Are you producing fruit in your life? Some of you might be here this morning and say, man, there's, there's none in my life. I don't have a desire to obey Christ. Let me challenge you this morning and say, it might very well be that you're not saved. That you don't know Christ as Lord and Master. And so I would urge you this morning to repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. Confess your sin to Him. Tell Him He knows it all. You can't hide anything from Him. Confess it. Tell Him that you're a sinner. Admit that before Him. And beg for mercy. Cry out to God. Ask Him to save you. And He will. Because He's a God who saves sinners. And then watch and see what God does in your heart. A desire to be in His Word. A desire to serve Him. A desire to love Him. A desire to be more like Him. Because that's what true salvation is produces listen he didn't save you so that you could just sit around and be idle as one preacher says there is no casual Christianity we're commanded to work out our salvation to be continually working it out in our lives and growing in our sanctification. And there are three aspects to working out our salvation. We work it out obediently, we work it out reverently, and we work it out dependently, and we'll look at those next time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for saving us by your grace. None of us deserve salvation from you we know exactly what Your Word tells us, that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All we like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us has sinned against You, a holy and righteous God. And Lord, We don't deserve the salvation that you've given to us. We know that it is by your grace. By your grace alone. And we're so thankful for it. We thank you that you have saved wretched sinners like us. And Lord, I do pray for anyone who is here this morning who does not know you. Lord, we ask that you would save them. By your grace. And for those of us who have been saved by your grace. Father, may we understand and realize what it is that you have done in our hearts. And as Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Oh, Father, help us. To express our love for you our gratitude to You through obedience to Your commandments. We love You and we thank You for the work that You continue to do in our hearts. Lord, we cannot do this alone. We need Your Spirit to work in us. Lord, we also understand and know that it's a responsibility for us to work out our salvation And so, Lord, I pray that you would do that work in our hearts and that you would give us the desire to be obedient to you and that you would be glorified through all of it. We thank you for this great command that you've given to us. I pray that you would help us to take this seriously. And Lord, that you would help us to be sanctified, that you would grow us in our sanctification as we pursue sanctification for your glory and your glory alone, we pray in Christ's name, amen.